The Game Schooler Podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, is a weekly audio show that educates new and experienced gamers about the awesomeness of tabletop gaming. In this week's episode, we'll cover Color Brain, our game of the week, discuss fighting the inner completionist in the school of gaming, and wrap it up by revealing our high five retail games that feel deluxe. Welcome to the Game Schooler Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Kotecki, along with my co-host, Dr. Michael McCabe. How's it going, Michael? Hey, Doug. Good to see you again, buddy. <laughs> I know. It feels like we've already done this once. Yeah. Uh, maybe we have. <laughs> maybe. Well, we'll let the listeners decide. Uh, let's dive right in. We got some follow-up. Um, we have released a video version of our podcast, and the plan is to have that going forward. So hopefully you enjoy that. I think it goes live on the Spotify platform, but it's also available on YouTube. We've also updated all of our blog, uh, podcasts on YouTube as well. Apparently, there's a big audience of uh, podcasters that or people that listen to podcasts. Sorry, I got distracted by Michael's big gulp there. That's a Why are you calling fi- that out again, man? Is that a five-gallon bucket? No, but when I have a glorious mustache, as I do for about three weeks out of the year... I need to drink liquids out of a straw. Uh, hey, stay hydrated, man. That's right. Hydration is key, Doug. All right, All back right. to you. Um, we also got a follow-up on the Discord server about our high five last week. Last week, we talked about uh, great games that we thought needed new artwork. And I was called And Doug out. was wrong. <laughs> Doug was wrong. I had a game that I put in my honorable mention but said didn't it, it didn't make my list because the artwork had been improved. And my version was the original uh, one that I don't think is that great. And uh, I got called out on the Discord server, which I appreciate people interacting on the Discord serve, uh, server. <laughs> I don't appreciate Michael getting a pass for saying that Cascadia needed new artwork. Well, I, I think it's more of your attack on the beloved Lost Cities, right? A the two-player only, uh, Dr. Reiner Knizia classic, loved by people worldwide, I might yeah. add. And I feel, feel like we did make attack, it. And, I feel uh, like, hey, Discord stood strong, baby. I feel like we did preface that by saying it was a great game. Um, the, the title of the high five, Great Games. Um, and again, artwork of, is subjective, but I will stand by my statement that I think the original artwork for Lost Cities, not so great. Every time I play it, it's, it's a, the new artwork has a panorama that if you laid all the cards down, it would show the whole thing. The original one was kind of zooming in with each card. And it gets kind of awkward. It's a I weird... don't think you're going to change anyone's mind, Doug. Maybe um, not. It's but... okay. It's okay. I'm I'm not necessarily mad that people called me out about it. I'm mad that people did not call you out about <laughs> Best Sobel artwork and that they're just a free pass. That's fine. Cascadia is hot garbage in the artwork department. You said that, not Everyone's me. Go back and listen to last week's episode. All right. What's that? I burned out on animals. That's all. Yeah, but that's a burned that's a retheme. That's a retheme. Exhausted re-theme. That's, on animals. That's Don't a retheme. That's not new art. 
Oh, frenemy. All right. Oh. Uh, anything else to follow up on for you, Doug? Douglas? I don't think so. I, I do want to highlight our um, Discord uh, in all fun that we do appreciate getting the feedback and the, the, the banter and discussion that happens over there. Yes, Michael. And I have one thing to follow up with that. We have folks who are going back and listening to earlier episodes. And in one episode, I think it was 16 or 17, we talked about the concept of the scar of the screen. And we were both, you know, coming just out of the the COVID times where people were living on their screens. And so I am going to research and, and basically here's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say. I'm going to look at what studies have come out over the last two or three years. I'm going to follow up on the Discord and, and compare it to the previous research. That's what I'm sure. trying to say succinctly, but but really struggling with. Uh, so I have time on my calendar this Saturday to do a deep dive, get back into Google Scholar, and just see what what studies have come out. What are the impacts of you know eight to twelve hours of screen time per day for tweenagers and teenagers? And, and so look for that on the Discord. Kind of a recap from a previous segment that we did uh, over two years ago now. Yeah, a lot of great content and, and discussion going on in Discord. You can sign up for that by going to gameschooler.com slash Discord uh, to learn more about it and, and get all the links to sign up and, and all of that goodness. What's awesome in gaming, Michael? What's awesome in gaming this week is that one of our, our folks on the Discord actually started a Game Schooler podcast fan group on Board Game Arena. So it's a public group. Anyone can join Today already, I've invited one of our friends of the podcast, Dan, uh, to that group. And so if you want to play Forest Shuffle together, if you want to play a six-person game of Llama together, or maybe you want to go through a, a, a heavier game, um, mm. we could do that. And it's a great place for people who are in our community uh, to connect because we might not always be able to get to the same convention. Doug and I don't travel to Singapore together often. Yeah, but regularly. on Board Game Arena, we can we can get together and, and play games. So I thought that that was awesome that Brew and Buzz started that. Uh, Kristen, who's on our Discord and very active, went ahead and did that. And the logo is up and everything. So it looks great. Can't wait to play games with people on that uh, on that platform. Yeah, and there'll be more details on that at, at uh, the Discord. So gameschooler.com slash Discord to check that you, out. Doug? What's awesome um, for you this week? I want to highlight campaign games um, and legacy games. There uh, can be difficult to get to the table, right? To get a, the same group of people over and over again to play a single game continuously. But Michael and I have been diving into the Lost Ruins of Arnak campaign. It's a cooperative campaign for so two good. Players, solo or two players, and we've been going to that, uh, going through that. And I just appreciate, and, and I do think it's an awesome opportunity to get games back to the table that maybe I wouldn't as frequently. So we're having a good time going through that, or at least I am. Great having time. Having a good, good time going through the, the scenarios. I think we're about halfway through. But I I think often in, in campaign and legacy-style games, the, the knock is, when am I going to have a chance to play them? And the flip side is it's really awesome when you do and you get to bring a good game back to the table repeatedly. And so I appreciate that, and I think it, it is awesome when you get the chance to do it. 
Yeah, that's such a good point, Doug. And what I love about the Lost Ruins of Arnak campaign, it takes a, a solo gaming experience that, that I enjoy and then allows another player into that. It's almost like, um, you know, when you're playing a video game and you go to a next level, go to a next level. And then when that moment in time happened, when Xbox Live and Sony PlayStation had that where you could actually play games with other people and have that same type of experience. I feel like I'm having that with the campaign of Lost Ruins of Arnak. It's not just me playing solo. It's me going through this level with another person and the game is changing uh, from campaign to campaign. I think there's six in the game and we just finished the third. Uh, yeah. So we're about halfway through and it's 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 been a blast. Uh, and you've mentioned it before. Four, but maybe if you want to talk about kind of how we're being stretched as as gamers in that. Yeah, so the, the other cool thing about this is that there are two leaders in the expansion, and Michael and I are doing what is naturally opposite, opposite of what is natural to us when playing Arnak. So one character is more designed for the exploring phase, and the other character is more designed going up the research track. And if you want more information on Arnak, we did have an episode a couple weeks back about that. So if you want a, a deep dive into that. But normally I enjoy doing the exploration part of the game. And Michael is usually the one hunkering down on the research track. And those are flipped. So I'm spending more time in the research track just based on the character that I'm playing with. And Michael's is more rewarding to his player or character if he goes up the uh, and explores and, and goes to discover new areas. So it's kind of cool to get out of your comfort zone. A lot of times when I play Euro or heavier style games, I kind of pick a track and those are, I usually don't necessarily pick stuff that I think is going to win. I do the things that I enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of fall into a trap of, um, I, I think if you have a heavy emphasis on the research track in Arnak, you do better. But I also am more enjoy the randomness of what's going to be on the other side of this tile and taking that crapshoot. And so I like doing that at the um, peril of me winning the game. You know, yeah, it's kind of in, inverse. In the campaign mode, you, it's tight. I mean, the difference yeah. in winning and losing is one decision, and it could be the decision that you made on your third turn. So the cooperative nature of it, every turn, you have to talk about it with the person that you're playing with. It's a two-person-only campaign. You could play it solo or with a second player, and we're obviously playing with two players. And it's, it's almost as if we are on a trail or on an adventure together. I can't just yeah. go ahead and take a turn and do what I want to do because it could have a severe detrimental effect on the entire game. Yeah. Same with Doug. He yeah. could just make a decision because he thinks it's the best decision, but great. Thanks, Doug. We just lost the game. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely going to let him know about it. But uh, that's <laughs> it's been a really fun experience. I'm glad that we, we've gotten it to the table. I'm looking forward to the next adventure. Well, and... One of the things that I know we talk about, you know, earlier you talked about the scar on the screen and spending, you know, the, the whole concept of that is spending time offline and spending time with people. And I just think about the luxury of, of you and I playing that game and you and I going through the Dice Throne adventures mm -hmm. a couple times together 
and the amount of bonding and friendship that that brought out from us, you know, obviously we already were friends and had a relationship, but even just those experiences to work together, to solve problems together. And it's not a three or four person experience where you're juggling things. It's like, it's me and you hunkering down and doing something. And I think that is a part of the hobby that also gets kind of glossed over is those connection points that you can have outside of just the the superficial like social aspect of like we're getting together and playing games we're having a great time but no doubt there is a level of enrichment and and bonding that we have done over gaming over the past several years that um i i would think brought us closer together absolutely but people well, don't necessarily talk about that as a it's more of just like oh yeah you get to interact with people no and I think that's it can a, great be a lot point. deeper you know? No, it is. That's a that's a great point because if I showed up at your house uh, for a barbecue in the summertime and I'm wearing a Shadow Thief T-shirt, right, <laughs> that I pick up at, uh, from Roxley's website, or if my kids got it for me for Father's Day, you'd get a chuckle out of that and you'd be like, yeah. "Yep, that was Michael's character in Dice Throne Adventures. Yeah. That means something." If yeah. I wore that Shadow Thief T-shirt to church or to the gym, right, to basketball practice, they'd be like, "Is something wrong with Coach?" Coach, all right, what's going on? Because you don't have that connection, right? And I think the hobby allows that. There are so many different branches on that tree. And we've talked about it when we went to Gen Con, just all of the different things to see and do and experience. I think that's a great point that you bring up. Uh, It's a connection. Yeah, yeah. You show up with that to to basketball practice, all the players going, oh, what well, I've been talking sem- about it for years now. I got to get a medium. What new skill, skill seminar did, <laughs> did Coach go to that now we're going to be doing the Shadow Thief program, def- new defensive uh, form. So, all right. Well, if you like what we're doing, spread the word about the podcast. We'd appreciate that. And if you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us, email at gameschooler.com. With that out of the way, let's head over to the game of the week. The game of the week. The game of the week is an in-depth look at a family-friendly game we think you should try if you get the chance. This week's game is Color Brain. Doug, give us the stats. All right. Originally published in 2017 by Big Potato Games, Color Brain is designed by Tristan Williams and the art is by Zoe Lee. The player count is 2 to 12 players. However, that's kind of a misnomer. I think the box may say 2 to 20. There's four sets, uh, two to four teams or players can play this game. So however many people you want to fit on the team is how many players you can play up to. There are four player sets in the game. Game takes about 30 minutes. Uh, The side of the box says 8+. Board Game Geek in a rarity says 10 plus goes higher. Normally, Board Game Geek would say this is for four-year-olds and higher. Caps out at 10. But no, Board Game Geek says 10 plus, and I tend to agree with them. I think yep. this is one that is a is a multi-generational game. However, if you are playing with adults and you did go down to that eight-year-old level, I think the adults are always going to destroy the kids. So I think if you go up into the 10 to 12, you can start playing with adults. And 
Uh, above 12, I think it's fair game. In that 8 to 12 range, I think playing with other kids is going to be a sweet spot for that. This is going to be classified as a family game or a party game, and it was a 2020 Spiel des Jahres recommended game. This is a family quiz game where all the answers are colors, but can you pick the right ones? Think you can remember what color the five Olympic rings are or the colors in a tube of Smarties? How about the color of Superman's underpants? To start, each team must hold 11 cards in front of them. Each one of them is a color card with the uh, name and the color uh, represented on the card. So if it's a blue card, it says blue and it's blue. And you are going to select cards from your hand of 11 color cards and put them down in front of you secretly to try and answer the question. Everybody is then going to reveal their answers. If everybody gets the answer right, there's going to be one bonus point given to the next question. So the points are going to carry over from round to round. If you are correct and somebody else got it wrong, you are going to get points for every other player that got it wrong. So if you're playing a four-player game, and you got it correct, and everybody else was wrong with their answer, you're going to get three points, one for each player that got it wrong. And you keep doing that until you, uh, I believe, score 10 points, triggers the end game, and whoever has the most points win, the first person to get to 10. So that's the, the, the general rules of the game. The, the game comes with this little uh, box. There's 300 cards, double-sided I, I Maybe it's 150 cards, but they're double-sided, so you get 300 questions in the game. And this little dispenser tells you at the top there's a number. That's how many colors are in the answer. There's a window that then is the clue. For example, this one is a baby swan for one color. Or, you know, Sid Barrett's most famous band, one color. And so then you would select one of your colors, place it out, and that's how you score. So a really cool production, the way that they do this, you can go all the way through this deck, flip it around, and then there's a whole other deck in the box, and it kind of pushes it forward so it hides the answer. Just a real cool setup. So what do you like about this game, Michael? I love that kids love to play this game. Yeah. I love that this game works in so many different settings. Uh, listeners, you don't have to be a long-time listener. Anyone who listens more than one episode knows that I struggle with colors, yet... I, I don't, I mean, I could play this game. There's no issue with it. So it's not like you have to be an expert in colors. It's a trivia party game that works in multiple settings. How about you? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is anyone can play this game. The rules are simple, straightforward. You get it set up and running in about 30 seconds. The other thing is there's a lot of flexibility with this game to modify the scoring however you want. And usually this is one of those games that you can, for me, I know it's good because when you finish playing it, everybody immediately says, let's do it again and again. And it can devolve into an activity in the best possible way. Like eventually the scoring doesn't matter and people have fun. And there are weird things where it's like, geez, I feel like I see that every day, but I not sure what it is or what the answer should be and it's like is it red or orange and you're trying to remember you know remember in your brain you know whether it's a famous cartoon character or something like that so i like that i i also think this is a great game that works in a whole bunch of different situations right yeah this is a a great game 
that you can use as a, a team game, and, and it can work in the classroom. Uh, a teacher can facilitate this game, divide the kids up into teams, and play. You can do it in a library. You can play as a family game night. You can do it a party game after, you know, kids are in bed and you're going to have a good time. You could modify it anyway. You know, it's so flexible. It's such a flexible, easy system, but still very engaging at the same time. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, Doug, okay? Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Yes. Do you own many board games? I own... Yes. Okay. Many. Okay. And I, I guess oh, that's the only question. I won't put you on the spot too much. <laughs> I'll just tell a little story here to, to our listeners. Dearest listener, for a lot of I, years now, multiple years, you know, Doug and I have known each other and I'll ask, what would you do? What games do you play? Banter, banter, banter. And Colorbrain would consistently come up. You have played this with your oldest child all the way down to your youngest child over the years. Yeah. Yes? Correct. So they keep going back to it, right? Yes. Okay. But the, and the, the key is, so here's the other caveat, is if you are playing regular color brain and you find out that there's a little bit too much of a balance towards adults or you feel like the kids aren't getting things like, you know, my kids aren't going to know Sid Barrett's famous, most famous band, um, which is Pink Floyd, by the way. And... So the, my kids, my 12-year-old's not going to know that unless they're... They might have said Leonard Skinner. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Jethro Tull. And so if you need to balance the scales a little more, there is a Disney color brain that goes through the different characters, like what color is Woody's vest and, you know, what colors are his Buzz Lightyear, Mickey Mouse's pants, things like that. And that completely evens the scale with adults. Because there are sometimes there's characters in the same way that my kids have no idea who Sid Barrett is. Sometimes yeah. there's people that come up in the Disney game. I'm like, I don't even know who that is, let alone what colors their fur is. And so that's a great equalizer if, if you want to do that. The, my kids have loved the Disney color brain version. And it is, out of all the games that I have in my collection, it is one of the few that my kids will get off of the shelf themselves and play or when they have friends over it is a board game that they will pull off the shelves and play with their friends because they can teach it they know how to play it and it doesn't matter if you're getting the scoring right they just go and they have a good time and and yeah. you can do it so you know if you want maybe don't have the points carry over and i there might be some um so molly's not getting up on a stool and getting mechs versus minions down to play with her friends and her Friends dolls. Yeah. And there, there's also, there's some alternative rules. There's a, a color capture card that, that adds another thing, a, a little level of strategy. I think you had mentioned one time that the, you know, the board game geek rating of this maybe is not so high. And it's yeah. like, if, if you're playing this game thinking that it's a, a deeply strategy, strategic game that you're going to uh, show your dominance of the color wheel over all of your friends, it's not that type of game. You're playing yeah. the wrong game. You're going into it with wrong expectations. And um, what else, Michael? Well, it's mother-in-law approved. You know, we've yeah. talked about that with other games, but this is a game you could take to your in-laws and have a good time. Doug just mentioned, you know, in a game in a house where there are a few hundred games, uh, maybe several hundred games, 
Um, this is one that the kids gravitate towards. And we talked about it at the top of the segment. We're talking about, about, talking about it again now. The multi-generational aspect of this game just makes it really appealing uh, for us as gamers and I think for our audience. The other thing that just shines with it is the comprehension. Because yeah. though the points carry from round to round, it, it forces a little bit of thinking where you want to get the right answer. And so there's that just enough of a, a reward factor with the game that I think it brings about some some great thinking and some great moments where where kiddos, you know, are I don't want to say forced, but they're forced to comprehend and really think about the question that's being asked. Yeah, one thing to be aware of is when you are playing with those points rolling over, there is the opportunity for some large swings in the game. Oh yeah. So you could have four rounds that carry over and that's four extra points and when you're only playing to 10 if you happen to get one right and and three other people miss it you could get seven points in a single round and completely end the game so if you're playing with younger kids that that is something to be aware of um but this game has a lot of group discussion after the fact of oh my gosh i didn't know that or really is it that color that type of thing but then even when you get kids together on a team and we played over New Year's, and our daughters were on a team together. And just to see them working together, and I think it might be this or it's this, or somebody would step in and say, oh, no, I know it's this. It's like, okay, go with it, you know? And so seeing your kids use teamwork and the group yep. discussion and making those decisions is is really awesome. I, I tend to think that if we had played this version before – we did our, our top 50 games, family games of all time. This may have been on the list because I feel like it does hit Ooh. a lot of the boxes that we look for. Um, I don't wait it might, next it year. might bump something out. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, with, oh, the other thing, too, that we should mention about this is this one is extremely available and affordable. So most... Mass market stores, I know for sure Walmart has it, and it's available on Amazon, and it's usually below $20. So very affordable to get a, a game. $20 to get a game that's this flexible is, is pretty rare. Yeah. That, that can fit into as many spots as this one can. Yeah, and can be taken into a classroom, be taken over to somebody else's house. Uh, you don't have to worry about it being precariously placed on a table and having the cards scatter everywhere. You're going to be all yeah, right. That'd be the worst. Who would do that? It's a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, anything else, Michael? No, not, not for me. The only thing I, I, I would caution folks, if you go too young, you need to have one independent reader in the group. So yeah. if you're a third or fourth grade teacher and you're like, boy, this really sounds like a game I want to get and bring into the classroom. Just keep in mind, you will need. There's some text on the cards, so you'll need one independent reader to be able to facilitate that game. But if you have that, um, that's why we set the cutoff age more towards that ten than that eight. Yeah. And I certainly wouldn't want to just say, "Okay, six year olds, come on over. We're going to play this game," and then walk away and expect that they're going to be able to play that game independently. That's my only note of caution with this game. Yeah, and and the younger you go, the more likely you're going to have better luck with the Disney version. Um, if you're having trouble finding this game, it is – I've seen it both ways, but it seems like the publisher, Color Brain, is one word. No no space in between it. It's all one big word, Color Brain. With the British, British spelling. 
Uh, it just depends on which version you have. Okay. So the, the U.S. version has the U.S. spelling. Um, but there there are several variations of, of title. And so, like, on Board Game Geek, if you look up Color Brain and space it, you will find it. But when you go to the page, it's written as one word. So some variation there if you're looking for it. I, I don't think you should have trouble finding it in any sort of Google search. But just as a, a caveat to throw that out there. So that is our, our game of the week. No surprise that it was a 2020 Spiel des Jahres recommended game from Big Potato Games. That is Colorbrain. Let's move on to the School of Gaming. The School of Gaming. In the School of Gaming, we discuss concepts, keywords, etiquette, and helpful ideas in the world of gaming. This week, we're going to discuss Fight the Inner Completionist. <laughs> and uh, I think I'm actually going to take the lead yep. in on this one. Atypical most School of Gaming segments, but this is challenging as Doug and I are both completionists in our own and different ways. For example, all things Marvel-related, that's Doug, Lorcana, Doug. Board games that I go in on for greater than $150, uh, that's me. I'm going to struggle with that one. So I'm curious to see how you want to take this or words of wisdom, but I think both of us in our own ways have definitely wrestled with being a completionist. Yeah, it certainly is a, an issue that's popping up all the time, and it's it's something, like you said, I struggle with. I, I think you struggle with sometimes. And there are a handful of games that I am a completionist on, and I know what they are. Um, however, some of those games that I consider myself a completionist on, I know that I'm actually not. Okay? Interesting. So Say more about that. For example, something like Marvel United. I have all of the – I got – a lot of the pledges on Kickstarter, but I don't have all of the plastic tokens. I don't have all of the cardboard components. There's been some promos that have been released at conventions that I haven't gotten. So if I were theoretically a true completionist, I would have all of those, but I don't, but I also still consider myself a completionist of having a, a lot of it. And I think there are those two distinctions of, of, Full-blown completionist to yeah. your own rules. And I think that's the important thing is, is you can make your own rules of what you want to collect, what you want to have, however you want it to be. So just because some guy online doesn't think you're a completionist, if you feel like you have everything that you need, you're a completionist yeah. and that's fine. So I think that's one thing to kind of keep in mind is that nobody else dictates to you what being a completionist is, you can have your own rules. Yeah, I'm, I'm processing the words <laughs> that you're saying. That was me thinking there. Uh, apologies for the, the moments of, of thinking. It's we, we both have hobbies outside of board gaming, right? And, and that's where I want to really stick to our topic and our audience. But I love what you said there about setting personal rules and being okay with those rules. Uh, and, and 
and, and the other thing that, that you said there that, that really hit with me is some things I just can't keep up on. Yeah. You know, when you talked about the things in Marvel United that you do not have, I thought, man, how could anyone keep up? If you don't have it all, how yeah. could one human possibly have it all, even if you've backed everything on Kickstarter and have painted, you know, 200 different minis? Uh, for me, I know Lost Ruins of Arnak. I know Tapestry. If anything comes out for those, I'm feeling itchy. I, uh, I got to get it. I've got to keep. I got to stay up on it. Those are two of my favorites. I got to make sure that I have it on the shelf, just because if somebody came over, I, I potentially it's that that same sense that we've talked about about potential. Yeah. So from a collection standpoint. I'm not necessarily a completionist where I need to have it all to have it all from, from a board game standpoint. That's not how I look at it. For me, it's that sense of potential. Well, if the right two people came over and if they loved Lost Ruins of Arnak, like I love Lost Ruins of Arnak, I want to make sure that they could play with their specific leader that they've been wanting to play with. That's, that's the challenging part for me. Yeah. I think the other thing is knowing when a when and it's okay to tap out right i for you for yeah for for per, for anybody that for, so for example i started getting marvel legendary which is a deck building game cooperative deck building game and then you know what they just kept making expansions and at a certain point i'm like i've got enough i've got more than i could ever use in a lifetime i don't need more 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 I think it would be cool to have every map collection for Ticket to Ride, but I'm not, I don't have time and I'm not going to play every map collection for Ticket to Ride. So as cool as I think it would be to have on my shelf, at a certain point I said, I can't keep up with this. I don't want to keep up with this. And that's okay too. I mean, I think anytime you're talking about adding expansions or variations or promos and, and things like that, it comes down to, am I actually going to play or is it about the collection? You know, do I yeah. just want the collection or is it about actually playing? And I think the important thing, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, and it's a big thing that I talk about with my kids as well, is I don't care what decision you make as long as you know why you're making it. Yeah. So if you're just buying expansion, expansion, promo, promo, because you feel like you need to have it to keep up with some unwritten rule, that's bad. If you are collecting it because you're like, I want to have this complete set of Ticket to Ride, everything that they've ever made of Ticket to Ride, and it's just something that I hold dear, that's okay too. And it's okay to say, I'm never going to play these. They don't need to sit on my shelf. I don't want to be a completionist in this. That's okay too. But as long yeah. as you know why you're making those decisions, I think that's one of the most important things that you can do. Um, there is no right or wrong answer, you know, because sometimes the hunt of I'm trying to hunt down that promo, I'm trying to hunt down that missing card is a hobby and, and fun to some people in itself. Yep. If I ever come across this, I'm going to pick it up. I can't wait. And finding that kind of grail moment, there was a Ticket to Ride promo that came out 15 years ago. It was only at Gen Con, and I've never seen it. And being on the hunt for that can be cool. Like, that is a hobby. And and like I said, neither is right or wrong, right? 
Yeah, and I think where I struggle with that whole inner completionist sense, and I talked about it at the opening part of the segment, but is that that whole sunken cost fallacy of mm. I've already invested multi-hundreds of dollars into a single game, which sounds really bad to say out loud, folks, but <laughs> I do have Foundations of Rome in my collection. Yeah. So when the Foundations of Rome expansion comes out, and there's a possibility to play it solo, and they're offering a play mat. That's something that I I do wrestle with, and and I I'd go back and forth on. That's gotten better over time, I think, just because of understanding. I'm not going to get to play all the games. Yeah, I don't need any more games. More is just more. That's yeah. all that it is. Uh, but that that sense of collecting if if i'm already invested into a product at a high level i know that i'm going to struggle not having it all and and i think that's where the marvel united example is a really good example our our game of the week last week that we revisited and was also our game of the week in episode 1 i just have the base retail version because i know if i get into that rabbit hole uh, oh man, now I got to get the X-Men. Now I got to chase this. Now I got to chase that. And so for, for, and that's where you and I are different. I, uh, if I get into a rabbit hole, I'm going to go all the way down and mm-hmm. I want to see what's at the bottom. And then uh, a lot of times I'll often just climb all the way up and either trade it, sell it and look for a different rabbit hole to go down. And that gets into that uh, awareness in the hobby. Right. And that's where people are different. And, uh, I think the other thing that comes into it for me too is just the space. You know, sometimes being a completionist, um, I don't necessarily have the space, and I'm talking actual like space Physical. in my home, yes, to put everything. Yeah. Um, and the the moment where that became clear was when the Everdell Collectors <laughs> Complete Collectors Edition arrived even though it became incomplete like a week later when that kindergarten pack came out, but I digress. And the box was 20.3 pounds. And my family was like, dad, you don't have it. Where are you going to put that? Yeah. Um, I might have to put it in the built-in bookshelves. We might have to take out the book. And, and like that, that moment and just realizing like, Okay, this is a real thing. I'm not going to be able to keep up if they continue to make more Everdell because I just have this 20 pound box. Of, well, what else do I need? Well, and I can't keep up. Well, I'm and done. how quickly it can escalate. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. the the rate at which games are becoming discounted, more easily available, it does not take much to have your collection swell in no time to a point that it becomes unmanageable. One well, thing. And, go ahead. Oh, I just to put put a bow, and then I'll send it back to you. But that, but that was the moment for me was with Everdell Farshore. Mm. I pre-ordered it without thinking about it. I'm like, I love Everdell. I love Everdell. And then I got the game, and it just didn't work as well. And that was kind of a bookend moment for me that started with, okay, I've got this 20 pound box that I have to find space for in my house. And then they came out with another game. And although Everdell is one of my favorite games of all time, that's where I kind of tapped out and just rinsed my hands in the hobby of being a completionist yeah. with anything. Well, I think so. that I think that is hard when it's a a game that you like the original of and they announce anything for it and it's like, well, of course I will love that. But that's not always the case. 
And yeah. and it's so easy to get blinded into, well, I love that, so of course I'm going to get the expansion for it. And the amount of expansions, I know we've talked about expansions and stuff in the past, and this is kind of a, a little bit of an offshoot of that, but there are games where it's like, I love that game, I bought the expansion, and then it's like, but I never play the expansion because I don't have enough people that know the base game well enough to throw the expansion yeah. in. So at that point, um, you're in a different scenario. On the flip side, if you have a game or your family has a game, and I'm just going to use Ticket to Ride for an ex- as an example, um, that you play Ticket to Ride once a week or two times a month, and an expansion comes out or and those um, quality of life upgrades – for the game and oh, there's a new map there's a new this we're adding that if those are coming out once two or three times a year and that gets you playing the game more regularly that's awesome like yeah then keep if, if that keeps you your favorite game fresh and new all the time then yeah keep getting those um but just be yeah. aware of what you're doing but but how many favorite games do you have right <laughs> because too. even in the games we've talked about if and I'm just going to use strong eye language with me, not you, Doug. This is me, okay? But Lost Ruins of Arnak, Tapestry, and Everdell, right there, that will fill up a three by four calyx. You know, because yeah. if be, come, publishers are smart, right? If if games are selling, they're going to get you more. They're going to get you more. They're going to get you more. And so, I guess the argument that I'm putting on the table is. In our hobby, I'm not sure anyone can truly be a completionist anymore. No, you have to. You have to pick always... different versions, different things. You have to either. It's either a brand. Nobody, nobody's going to be a completionist on board games in general. That would be. There's just new insanity. additions. There's there's new this, new that. Um, you know, if something wins the spiel, you can be guaranteed that's going to get a new edition at some point with upgraded. Vincent drew trade art. Yeah. Um, so it, it was something that, that was a bigger issue for me when I first got started that I want to have, Oh, they came out with another expansion. And I think that if there's anything that I can pass on of, of wisdom of, of time and experience is the number of those purchases that I made that then in hindsight, now I have realized I didn't play them. I'm not playing yeah. the expansion. It's like, yeah, it's cool to have them and to want them. And then I get them and I'm not using them. And then the idea of being completionist on certain titles disappeared uh, now. And now and every time something new gets announced for a game, even a game that I love, like, for example, I like if they announced that they were coming out with an expansion for Bad Company, a game I really enjoy and I think they could easily add expansions to, my first instinct is gotta have it. My second instinct is whoa, whoa, whoa. Am I gonna play this? Do I am I going to play it enough times that it's any better than just getting the base version out again and play that one? And yep. the answer is probably no. But there is that knee jerk reaction of like, must have, love it, you know. So I, I don't know if, if, if that gave some, some good advice, if there's some wisdom in there. It is something that I struggle with, I know you struggle with, in, in a collection versus playing. And I think, again, the main takeaway is no matter what your decisions are, know why you're making them and know that you have the freedom to change and make the rules however you want to fit your collection and personal needs. So 
Let's move on to the high five. If you're anything like us, you're constantly on the hunt for new games to try out. This week, Michael and I are going to be talking about retail games that you can get that feel deluxe. And this deluxe. This was deluxe. a hard game, a hard list for me because I had, I probably had ten to fifteen options as I was going through my collection and kind of weeding stuff out. And I, I, I sent a text to you and I said, I think this is an indication of where the hobby has gone to where the production quality that is coming out on, in some cases, mass market retail games that feels like would have been Kickstarter exclusive seven years ago is leaps and bounds, right? And it's now $24 in a box that you can get at Target. Yeah. And so how many of your games are from before 2015? uh, None. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, my my earliest is 2017. Um, three out of the five have been games of the week. I tried five out to, of five for me. Five of them. Did you say? Yep. Yeah, I have some other ones that I my honorable mention list is is some of them. Actually, all of them on my honorable mentions were games of the week, and I kind of wanted to shine light on some different games and and kind of different versions of of deluxe of what that means where some of them have fancy bits some of them have cool inserts and things like that so we'll get into it as we go along i'm curious to see how many crossover we have and and which ones um that that may carry over to what i have in my honorable mention but well i'm gonna guess that number five is not on your list number five for me is azul it was Mm. a game of the week all the way back in episode my short list yeah, and in Azul, you are pulling tiles from a bag. Uh, tiles are coming out from a bag and getting put on coasters. You're then going to select one type of those tiles and put it down on your board as you try to collect patterns and score points, and the rest of the tiles are getting pushed into the center. There is something about those tiles. This game could have used cardboard punch-outs, but the fact that it used these chunky acrylic tiles... It just has that feel and the cloth bag and how everything fits together in there. Uh, It was our Game of the Week in Episode 7, published by Plan B Games. Michael Kiesling, experienced designer. We also have some some guides out there that dive into uh, this game a little bit more, but definitely a game that I enjoy playing. I actually enjoy playing it on Board Game Arena, Mm. which you wouldn't think because of um, a game where you're talking about the deluxe feel of the components. But that's to say, it's also a great game. It works on so many different levels. You can get it at Target on sale for $24, $25 a couple times throughout the year. Yeah, It does MSRP right around $34.99 to $40 right now. Uh, but definitely has a deluxe feel for me. Number five is Azul. Yep, great, great choice there. <clears throat> My number five is a game that we very briefly mentioned on this podcast in the past, and that is War Chest. Um, in War Chest, you are – it's a kind of like a bag-building chess skirmish game, but all of the tokens in the game are like poker chips, and they're screen-printed. They're not stickers on them, and it comes in this box that you fold over with a, a magnetic gate, so it feels like you're opening up this massive – book and the the chips are all laid nice out in the in the box and it feels 
just feels higher end than what you would kind of expect. I think if I handed that to people and they, they feel the weight of it, they'd be like, well, surely this was a deluxe Kickstarter that you got all of these tokens with. And it's like, no, that's just the game. And it's a, it's a great two- to four-player game, essentially a two-player game. You can pl- kind of play it with teams. It came out in 2018 by AEG designers Trevor Benjamin and David Tom- Thompson. But it just has that um, weight to it that I think really, and especially at the time that it came out, 2018, uh, has a lot of modern features to it that you'd expect to find on a, on a modern Kickstarter. Yeah, that's a great call. It was on my honorable mention. Those same two designers have also done the Un- Undaunted series mm. and have done just some games where the production quality is really high. All right, over to me. Number four is Her Story. It was our game of the week back in episode 95. The designers are Nick Bentley, Emerson Matsuuchi, and Daniel Reynolds. And why Her Story has a deluxe feel for me, again, some of it just has to do with uh, what Underdog Games does when they publish a game. You get the box open, and, and when I open that, I feel like I am immersed and have this sense of, Wow, what's going on here? There's a wow factor with the wooden bits and the cloth bag and the art. The art from Eunice uh, Adiai and Christina Aguirre, um, it, it just gives me a feel of, I didn't think this would be a $30 game off of Amazon. This really feels more. Um, so that's my number four is her story. Well, my number four, I'm going to keep it with underdog games, and I put trekking through history uh, came out in 2022. We talked about it in episode 87, designer Charlie Bank. And this one's got a couple of things. It's got the an uh, awesome insert, the uh, playmat main board. So you roll it out, you're ready to go. And then all of the tokens in the game are little plastic, rubbery plastic pieces that so easily could have just been punch-outs that there's that extra element of the the tactile nature of that and some of the gems that are in the game and, of course, the artwork. But the fact that you open up the box and you pull it out and you're ready to go in, uh, you know, a minute and a half adds a a lot to the presentation of feeling like, oh, yeah, this is a well-designed, developed game that feels better than just based on the feeling of everything. And I didn't put it on my list because I have the Kickstarter version. It's the same. <laughs> so, it, And that's awesome. Yeah, the, that, the that, Kickstarter version great. is the same. The only thing different was a solo module that I think they added into the regular version anyway. So That's really good to know. The game, the game that you get on Amazon is the same game that I got for backing it with no difference in, in production. And that was one thing that I had to kind of be aware of. I looked on some and I was like, ooh, that's a good one. And then I'm like, no. I have the deluxe version of that. That's it's deluxe because it feels it's deluxe. deluxe because I have the deluxe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, great. Well, number three, there might be crossover here, but number three is a game we talked about in episode seventy-eight, and that is Planted. Phil My Walker three Harding. As well. All right, well, let's just let's just share about it together here. Phil Walker Harding and Buffalo Games, incredible designer, and Buffalo Games dollar for dollar. We've talked about it in the past. I don't know what they're doing to get that much game into the box. And 
full disclosure, there was also a pricing mistake at Target when I got this. So I think I have some bias because I got it for 20 bucks. Yeah. You know, so when you get an extra deal on a game, it can make it feel extra deluxe. But the wooden bits, uh, the, the quality, the cloth bag, I mean, I'll send it back to you, Doug. Yeah, well, this is the first game that I was blown away by. I, I was walking through Target the other day, and it was on their, their clearance shelf for $20, and normal price is 30 And even at 30 it was the first game I ever opened up, and I was like, how did they do th- How is this possible? Yeah. How, are, how are other companies selling me games for $30 that have a whole bunch of, of cardboard that I'm punching out for days and days, and this one has plastic and wood components that are ready to go right out of the gate just boggled my mind how how that was possible and i you know i don't know if they're they're shopping at the thrift thrift stores that our discord users are going to that they've assembled just gobs and gobs of pieces for a low price but it was the the first game that really made me take notice of i think there there had been a string of summer camp and the the uh, Willy Wonka chocolate game that Buffalo Games had done up to that point, and then they had planted a game of nature and nurture, and it was like, whoa, these guys yep. are operating on a different level for mass market. And the other stats of the game as well, it's 20 to 30 minutes, uh, very, very simple, uh, and just the whole set col- resource collection to... Uh, fulfill an order of your house plant on your card and how some of the bonuses work like you would expect from a Phil Walker Harding game. Game feels deluxe, man. Yep. It just, it, it, it does. It's 100%. A, it's a great little one. All right, back to me for number two. Yep. And I have, um, this was episode 69 for us, Game of the Week, and that's Tenpenny Parks. Hmm. And if mom- folks will give me just one moment to pull that up on Board Game Geek um, 2022, one to four players. Here's where I get the deluxe feeling. It has a little carousel in it that mm. turns, and then you have the Vincent Dutrait art. And when I combine those two things with, I, I guess the game is up to $60 MSRP now. That price has ticked up a little bit. But we had a friend who helped with some of, I don't know if we would say the development or the yeah. insert, but both. we had both, right? We had an inside track on that because our friend Dan Cunningham did the insert and was involved with the development of the game. And when I got my version, I think I got it off of Game Nerds and opened it up. I can remember that sense of just a little bit of awe. Hmm. Like, wow, I thought I was I was being treated to a special version before, but this is what the ordinary consumer gets. And so for me, it's that sense of, uh, you know, that Vincent Dutrade art has even in the last few years become somewhat ubiquitous. Yeah. But in that game, it just fits. It has a circusy theme. Um, and as I'm planting my park out and I'm, I'm trying to get the things to work on my own board, I just like how it fits together. And that's with cardboard punch out tokens. Yeah. But does that, that carousel and just how it all works together has a little bit of a deluxe feel for me. Yeah. Awesome. My number two is uh, from 2017, the oldest game on my list is from Libelud and Regis Bonasse, and that is Dice Forge. Uh, in Dice Forge, you are adding, you have two dice, and you are adding new sides to your dice and upgrading those. And the way that they pulled this off, there's been quite a f- you know, several um, dice manipulation where you're creating your dice and adding sides, and they always seem 
kind of chintzy and cheap and the graphic art's not very good. And this game knocks it out of the park. The faces are easy to get off. They're screen printed. They're really nice. And you open it up and they're all laid out. And it's like choose your own adventure to, to add new sides and hope that you roll them. It's kind of got elements of a deck builder or a bag builder in the idea of constructing your own dice on your turn. And uh, just a really cool production and the way that they they it's got this rubber uh, it's kind of a strap that holds that that um part of the insert down so you can put it on its side and your pieces aren't flying all over the place it's all set and ready to go and so i just not only for the the toy factor but how well it was executed and it seems like Seems like one of those things, like I said with War Chest, where it seems like this was something that, oh, well, you could only do that with a Kickstarter, right? Raise a whole bunch yeah. of money to sell that. This one works on that front right out of the box, and that is Dice Forge. Excellent. My number one is Parks. It was our Game of the Week back in hmm. Episode 8. And I, I I can remember where I was when I picked this up at Barnes & Noble. And I got it home, and I I just assumed that Doug had a fancy Kickstarter version because that's what I had played. And when I got it home and unboxed it, and uh, whoa, 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 wait a second. These game trays come in the base version, and all of these bits are in the base version. And Keymaster Games just did an excellent job with the production. Uh, Henry Autobahn is the designer. We talked about this at length. We spent a whole episode talking about the incredible production. And yes, it's a long time ago. Maybe it's one we'll need to revisit down the road. But Parks is just um, a fantastic, deluxified feel with those wooden pieces and the trays that hold it. And you can even hand out trays to opposite ends of the table. And then the art, too. The art art is really uh, incredible and in how it all just fits together in, in a somewhat small footprint of a box. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great choice. It, it, I remember the first time I saw that game, and it was like, yeah, this I, I this is something. You know, this is fancy, the way that the art and everything is all tied together. Great choice. My number one we talked about in episode 57, and that is Fossilus, published in 2020 by Kids Table Board Games designer David Alberto Diaz. Not only does this game have a tray, you are putting uh, plastic square tokens on top to uh, symbolize sand and dirt and rock. And those tiles have uh, symbols on them and you're moving them around and you're diving into uh, containers with tweezers and pulling out little plastic bones. And it just, I, I mean, obviously we keep saying it over and over again. It feels deluxe. It feels like yeah. something that again, Kickstarter you would need to have that in order. And this was a Kickstarter game, but the there's no difference between a lot of the major components of this game uh, from the Kickstarter to the retail version. And I just think it's a joy when it's set up on table. People are look at it and think, what what is this? This is something else. I want to dive into it. So that's my number one, Fossilis. Um, as far as some honorable mentions, I had Dog Park for its artwork yep. and its insert and tokens there. Seven Wonders Architects has great 
feel of once you get it built to just be able to pass out all the pieces to everybody. Wingspan art and components there. Penny Black is another uh, Buffalo Games that, that's got great production value and Disney animated. We're all on my short list. That's awesome. The only one that is on my honorable mention that we haven't already mentioned is My Little Scythe, mm, yeah. episode 39. Um, just great pieces, and you can listen to that episode to find out more. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us this week. If you like what we're doing, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on X. Reminder to join the Discord server, gameschooler.com slash Discord. Next week, I don't know what game we're going to talk about. Michael and I have to discuss that. But we are going to be talking about worker placement variants and our top 10 from 2014. Thank you so much for spending the last hour or so with us. We truly appreciate it. Now get out there and keep gaming. <laughs>